0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the InDesigner, the podcast that provides information, instruction, and insight for designers using and learning Adobe InDesign. I'm your host, Michael Murphy, graphic designer and Adobe certified expert in InDesign CS2, and this is Episode 28, Part 2 of An InDesign Inventory. In part 1, I got about halfway through a 256-page magazine's worth of InDesign work I had done in July. We're going to pick up where that episode left off, showing more examples. And here we are at page 128. I call this one, Schizophrenic Windows. I showed an example similar to this in episode 20, the third part of the table series. It's a single InDesign table that spans five consecutive spreads. But there's something new I want to show this time around. Since this background image varies in color diagonally across each spread, I wanted to maintain that variation in colors behind the chart data rather than just filling the cells with solid color, but I also had to make sure my text and bullets would be legible whether they were solid or knockout. To do this, I used semi-transparent colored frames behind different portions of the table, since I can't make cell fills transparent without making their text transparent, too. But my table spans five spreads, and I didn't want to set this up five times, so these transparent frames are actually on a master page. They just happen to be lined up perfectly with the appropriate regions of the table on the document spreads. My dilemma in setting this up was that I had to be in two places at once, or rather work on two spreads at once. The transparent frames on the opening spread master page had to be lined up with the table on the first spread of the document. Since I can't see and work on two spreads in one window, I needed to have two windows for one document, which I was able to do by going to the Window menu and selecting Arrange New Window, which creates a new window for the same document right on top of my existing window. I'll switch to the opening spread master in this new window and arrange both so that I can simultaneously view both the master and the document. First I'm going to group these frames on the master, then start moving them around. So as I make adjustments here in this window, I want you to keep an eye on the document spread behind it to see what happens. I'll just pull these frames up to make them larger, and as you can see, that change is instantly reflected in the document, and I can see any additional changes I make without switching back and forth with the Pages palette. But for now, let me undo these changes and show you one more thing. On the four subsequent spreads, this table starts higher up on the page than it does on the opening spread, so I had to create a secondary spreads master page where I could adjust the transparent frames to fall properly behind the table on those spreads. That secondary spreads master page is based on the opening spread master page, so that everything but the height of those background tints would be consistent in both versions. I was able to use my two-window trick for the secondary spreads too, and reposition or otherwise edit these master page elements in one window, while simultaneously seeing those changes reflected in the other. When I was all done, I had four consistent secondary spreads and the exact look I was going for all along. Enough of that, let's move on to the next example. This one's on page 146, and we're going to look at the lines in a timeline. I have a real fascination with information graphics, so timelines are cool to me. This one's obviously very simple, but like most timelines, it has text callouts that need to be linked to a point along that line. The timeline also uses color to indicate the types of events that took place. And I opted to use these brackets below or above the text as both an anchor for the text and a way to incorporate that color coding. Getting all this text arranged in a way that it fit in a compact space took a lot of adjusting and readjusting, and I didn't want to be manipulating both text frames and a dozen or so brackets during that part of the process, nor did I want to keep aligning everything to maintain consistent space between the brackets and the text. So these callouts and their colored brackets are actually tables. Each table has these fixed width columns on either side, and the top row contains the text in the center cell, while the bottom row has no content, but it does have strokes. On the bottom and sides of this row are two point strokes in the appropriate color that create the bracket look. One of the things that helps conceal the fact that these are tables is that with no inset spacing at the bottom of the text cell or the top of the cell with the strokes, the descenders sort of dip into the open space of the bracket. This is a default behavior of InDesign text frames that also carries over to table cells. It's a subtle effect that helps reinforce the illusion that this text is sitting within the bracket. And because these are tables, I'm able to quickly and easily increase or decrease their width and my fake bracket at the bottom adjusts itself automatically. So accommodating text changes is no problem at all. There's something else going on here that also lets me take changes in stride. Notice that this rule, in fact all of these rules, extends from the center of the bracket. But now I want to make this text callout wider, so I extend the width of this table. Now my bracket is badly misaligned. That's because this table is actually extended out farther than the text frame that holds it. So I need to go to the Object menu and, from the Fitting submenu, select Fit Frame to Content to snap that frame to the new size of the table. And look where my rule is now, dead center again. If I change my mind and want the callout to be narrower, I just repeat those steps, choose Fit Frame to Content again, and the rule re-centers itself. Pretty neat, huh? Want to know how I did it? Let's take a closer look. These rules are all custom anchored objects, each anchored to an individual text frame. In the anchored object options, we can see how this auto-positioning trick works. The reference point for the object is the upper left corner, which corresponds to the top of this line that moves off diagonally to the right. The anchored position reference point is set to the bottom center point relative to the text frame, which puts it right here. So what these settings are doing is keeping the top left of this object anchored to the bottom center of the text frame at all times. When this text frame is moved or resized, the object goes with it, maintaining that relationship. That's how all the lines that move off to the right go, but those that move off to the left, like this one, have one small variation. The anchored object reference point for rules that go in this direction is set to the top right, which lines it up at this point. But the anchored object reference point remains the same relative to the bottom center of the text frame. So the table, text frame, and anchored object all depend on each other to make this work. I can open up the text frame, which people can't see, and the rule looks off-center. So I have to open up the table to the same width, so the rule will look centered in relation to the bracket, which people can see. But that's not all that's going on here. I've built even more flexibility into these anchored objects with the use of object styles. This yellow rule has all of its attributes stored in an object style called Top Callout Rules Yellow Master. Let's have a look at what's going on in this object style. This one object style has included with it a fill of none, a stroke color of yellow that's two points wide, all of the alignment, join, end cap, and line start attributes, as well as the anchored object options we just looked at, so everything can be applied to any stroke with a single click and this green rule uses an object style called top callout rules green and if we look at that style settings we can see that it's based on top callout rules yellow master the only difference between the two styles is the color of the stroke if you watched episode 26 this is the same principle I use to create master paragraph and character styles only applied to object styles this time around Here's where this pays off. Let's say I change this rule from two points to four points, change it from a solid line to a dashed line, and change the circular line start to a triangular wide line start. All I need to do is go to the Object Style Palette menu and choose Redefine Object Style. Every one of my rules yellow, green, and blue now reflects the change made to this one master object style. Of course, these new object style settings look horrible, so I can just as easily undo them all at once. And if you're thinking that this is a lot of style settings to create for a half-page information graphic, think about this. I only set up one. That's right, just one table, then one anchored object. Once I had them the way I wanted them and saved their attributes as styles, I just made copies and minor adjustments in color and position to complete the entire timeline. So again, planning and thinking it through up front is the key to flexibility and consistency later on in InDesign. Even though there are many more pages and many more InDesign features put to work in this 256-page issue, I had to choose between being comprehensive and getting an acceptably short podcast finished in a reasonable amount of time. So this is going to have to be the end of my InDesign inventory. So keep an eye out for my next episode, and in the meantime, please visit the blog at www.theindesigner.com, send your questions to info at or look for me on AIM or iChat as The InDesigner. Until next time, this is Michael Murphy for The InDesigner Video Podcast. Thanks for watching.